If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, good morning. Um, good, good morning to you. Today is going to be a great day. Um, I, um, man, God's going to do some good things. Um, I think a lot of us are going to be helped. And I've been praying that uh, many of us would be transformed, that God's, uh, God, there'd be an encounter uh, this morning. And um, we're going to talk about a subject that doesn't get talked a lot about in church, um, talk, uh, talking about the issues surrounding the LGBT community. And uh, w- it doesn't get talked a lot about because there's a lot of fear around that. One is uh, some of us f- feel if we're, if we're, we're afraid to, to compromise, we know what, we have a little bit of understanding what the Bible says and we're somehow afraid to talk about it in, in a way to where like, we compromise on truth. And some of us will come at it from a different angle. And uh, we're, we're afraid that if we talk about this in church, people that I know and love will feel judged and condemned because I do know I have a vague understanding of what the Bible says. And so we, we tend to, because of truth and love, we tend to shy away from the topic. We tend to be afraid of the topic. But man, there is amazing news because God is, is both a God of, of truth and love. So we can pursue any topic, and especially this topic, we can pursue God with this topic, knowing that the closer we get to him, we're going to experience truth. We don't have to be afraid of, of, of that. And, and he's also a God of love. In fact, it's not just that God is loving, like what he does is loving, but he is love. He is the pool from which love comes from. So we don't have to be afraid as we pursue uh, God's uh, as we pursue him around this topic, we don't have to be afraid of losing any love either, but actually we can experience them both together. That's what, what's going to happen. I think there's going to be clarity around the truth, and there's going to be clarity around love for that matter too. And we see that just coming together mostly at the cross. Um, at the cross, we see that God did not withhold a penalty for sin. But we also see in the cross uh, that God did not withhold his love because he paid the penalty for sin. And so God and his love, they come together it's in just amazing ways. And as you approach that God, you are going to see not just help, but you're going to have, you're going to experience transformation. And so I, I expect that to happen. Uh, and then we do, we have lots of questions. There's lots and lots of questions that we have around this subject. We don't know how to talk to our friends. Um, regardless of what, what your background may be, it's difficulty. Or maybe you're here today and you would say, like, I, I have same-sex attraction. And you're really confused and you feel isolated and, and you're wondering, what, God, what does God think of me? Or what do the people around me uh, think of me? And wondering if this is a safe place. And I, I hope that it is a safe place for you. And I believe that God would want to meet you as well and encourage and strengthen you. Um, and there's just tons and tons of questions around uh, this topic, which is why I'm so glad uh, my friend Rachel Gilson is here uh, with us uh, today. Because um, of those questions, Rachel uh, is from, she graduated from Yale University, which is in Connecticut. Um, for those who don't know, uh, it's in Connecticut. I found that out the embarrassing way. Um, She's from Connecticut. She's studying her, her master's in divinity from Gordwell uh, Conwell uh, Theological Seminary. Um, she is a writer. She is a, a, a blogger. She is a wife. Um, she is a uh, mother. Uh, she currently works for Crew uh, 
as the Director of Theological Development in the Northeast. She works with tons of, of kids, uh, college students, all throughout the country and even uh, the world in, in engaging this topic. And so she's going to be a massive, massive help to us today. And what's going to happen is that she's going to come up here and share her story, uh, which is an amazing story. And then I'm going to come up and we're, I'm just going to ask her a few questions. And, and this time, I'm the only one who gets asked questions. But if you have questions, we have this. You can text in your question to that number. And at 2 p.m. today, so, uh, we'll, we're going to have a special session where she's going to take about an hour and answer as many of those questions as possible. And you'd be absolutely crazy uh, to miss that. Uh, we'll do it here in this auditorium, but we also have a live feed over into the multi-purpose room for those uh, who have uh, children. So you, you must come to that. Uh, and the last thing I want to say before I invite her up is that I would, I, you know, I, I know many of you here, but I know that we also have some guests. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, but I just want to say that, um, that if, to not say anything, if you feel tempted to say anything rude or disrespectful uh, in any way, uh, we have guys that are like way bigger than me who would love to chat with you and answer all your questions. And, uh, and that's the first thing. The second thing is you come back next week. You can be disrespectful to me all you want. You can say things and you can, you know, you can um, be rude to me and heckle me and I, I can handle it. But just please don't do that with Rachel today. So with that, would you please welcome Rachel Gilson? Would you come on up? giant thing on the bottom. I'm not ripped, you know. There's so much to cover in this conversation. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed as we address it. Although for the handful of you who are hearing this for the second time, there will be a quiz at the end and you will be judged harshly. So just prepare for that. It's really great to be here with you this morning. And like Brian said, I want to open with sharing my story. And some of you might resonate with parts of it. Um, I know many of you, unlike myself, probably grew up in lovely Christian homes. But there are probably plenty of us in this room who didn't grow up in the church, who didn't have that as a part of, their, of your experience. And it wasn't a part of my experience, since neither of my parents had been religious growing up by the time they were raising their kids. It just wasn't a priority for us. It wasn't a factor that went into shaping my life and identity. And so by the time I was a teenager and in high school, I just naturally was gravitating towards some of the bigger questions, needing some bigger answers. How are we supposed to think about life? And I didn't think that Christianity or religion in general had very compelling answers to those questions. Part of that is that I was talking to other teenagers, and teenagers don't always have these things sorted out for themselves. You know, I've since discovered that Christianity has an intellectual depth and richness that is frankly unparalleled. But I wasn't so convinced of that. You know, at, at that age, it seemed more like a crutch for people who didn't know how to think for themselves. And I prided myself on being a person who thought for herself, even as a 16-year-old girl. But the other thing that really started to be true of my life in my high school years was realizing that I was romantically and sexually attracted to women. 
Now, I'd had some boyfriends early in high school. I, I really enjoy the company of men. It seemed like the thing that teenage girls do. But when I connected with my boyfriends in that way, it always felt a little awkward, a little out of place. And you might say, well, you're hooking up with teenage boys, and you're not wrong. But it also seemed different than that. And as I had my first major girlfriend and either some, some other young women who I connected with in that way, I thought, oh, no, this is home for me. This is what's natural. This is what I want to pursue. And I thought, well, and Christianity rejects this. So it's for people who don't like to think for themselves, it's for bigots. I'm definitely not going to have anything to do with this. So I was really excited to get into Yale College, which is in Connecticut. Best school in the world, right? I was ready to show up. And it turns out that if you went to a not very good public high school, you're maybe not going to be the smartest person at the best school in the world. Most people find that. So if I had built one of, one of the pillars of my life was my own intellectual excellence, that one got knocked down pretty fast upon my arrival at Yale. The other pillar I'd really built my life on was my sexual identity, and particularly um, this one girl that I basically worshipped, that combination of fear and love that we really only should direct towards God. Um, but we had a difficult breakup. You know, as a teen, you're, everything's supposed to be dramatic, right? So still a teenager. It was very dramatic, as it's supposed to be. And it left me very vulnerable. In a lot of ways, I went through an identity crisis at that period. I didn't really know where to turn. I didn't have anything else to fall back on. You know, I thought, well, maybe I should write for the newspaper, but I wasn't quite smart enough for that. Maybe I should go to the gym more, but I'm sort of lazy. You know, I never thought, oh, I should turn to Jesus because I didn't believe in Jesus. And so this was the place that I was um, at the beginning of the spring semester, which in Connecticut is always winter the whole time. No one tells you that. So we were talking about... I'm just still bitter. I moved without a winter coat. It was a whole bad thing. So we were talking about Descartes, who is an old dead philosopher who maybe you know about, maybe you don't. But he is the one who coined the phrase, I think, therefore I am, which maybe you've heard. And he used that as the starting point for a whole elaborate proof for the existence of God. And so we were talking about that in class one day. And in class, I remember thinking, this sounds really stupid. And today, I still don't think it's a very reputable way to prove that God exists. But in class, as we were considering it, I remember thinking, well, even if this is dumb, what if there is a God? And sort of immediately snapping back, like, no, that's for stupid bigots. We don't do that. Being like, well, maybe, you should, maybe I should consider it. Like, even if I am firm in my atheism, I should probably be more well-grounded in why. That doesn't seem unreasonable. So being a good millennial, I asked the internet. Um, just seemed the safest and most reasonable place to go. And because it was 2004, you needed like a crane and two hands to lift up the top of your Dell laptop. You're sort of like, is this actually more portable than a desktop computer? It's really doesn't make sense. But 
I would just type in random religious search terms, and I kept coming back to Jesus. And I was almost embarrassed with how compelling he was beginning to feel. Like I had, remember the time again, I had sort of imagined Jesus as like an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga. Like just a weird caricature of a type of conservatism I didn't want anything to do with. But as I was reading about Jesus, I wish I knew which websites I've been reading now, but you know, as I was reading about him, I encountered someone who was incredibly intelligent. He has all these accounts of people trying to take Jesus down, and he just owns them. Like, you can't get anything by him. He asked that question that just cuts right through their BS. And I was like, ooh, I really like that. Probably liked it too much. Probably something wrong with my heart in that. Wanting to be like that, just take down the enemies. But there was also in him this tenderness, this compassion towards the vulnerable, which I definitely did not exhibit, but which I was seeing as attractive. I mean, I was the kind of person who would use my humor to cut people down. I was arrogant. I was selfish. So I just, he was more compelling than I expected him to be. But the only two people at Yale I knew who identified as Christians were these two girls who were dating each other, and one was training to be a Lutheran minister. And I met them in the marching band because I am very cool. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I should at least ask them because as I was getting more drawn into Jesus, I felt the barrier of my sexuality. I was like, Christians don't like this. Jesus probably doesn't like this. So I asked them, well, how do you reconcile these things? What do you do? And they were like, oh, yeah, this has all been a big misunderstanding. God is actually totally for same-sex sexual relationships. It's like, oh, really? Great. So they, they're like, yeah, we have this whole packet of information that explains it. And I love a packet. So I took it back to my room. I'm ripping through this thing. And it has great internal cohesiveness. Like, it makes sense within itself. But as soon as I was pulling up the Bible verses it was claiming to interpret, my alarm bells started going off. Like, I'm not good at very much, but I do know how to read. So I was looking at these things. I'm like, I don't think David was gay. He like, clearly had a woman problem. And just different, just different places where you're like, yeah, I don't think this connects. And I just felt duped. I really wanted to believe that packet is the thing. It held out a type of hope for me. But I threw it in the garbage can. I was just like, whatever. Of course this doesn't work. So I was a little deflated. Soon after that, I happened to be in the room of a friendly acquaintance of mine um, who's a nominal Catholic. She was getting stuff from her room one day, and I was standing in the doorway. And I saw on her bookshelf that was near her doorway a book, the spine of which read, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, I wasn't raised on Narnia, so the name C.S. Lewis meant nothing to me. But mere Christianity definitely sounded like something I was interested in reading. However, it was very embarrassing to ask her for the book because I didn't want people to know that I was interested in Christianity. So when she wasn't looking, I just took the book. You know, <laughs> if you don't have, if you don't believe in morality, this is not a problem. And if your friend isn't expecting you to steal something from them, they're not going to be looking out for it. It's not like she has 
closed circuit cameras in a room. So I was reading this book because it was more interesting than my homework. And as I was reading it one day between classes in the library, I was suddenly struck, not just by the fact that God exists, but that he is incredibly holy. I did not know that word, but the reality of it pressed on me, that he is perfect, that he transcends me, and that I would have to give an account to him. And I was very afraid. And the first thing that came to my mind wasn't my sexuality. It was all of the other ways I was terrible. Um, Yeah, I just used to make people cry. Like, it was just not a good person. I was reading a stolen book, you know? There was just all this evidence. But attendant with that fear and with that understanding, I suddenly realized that Jesus came to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me, and that I would be safe if I fled to him. So of course, running through my mind, I'm like, uh, this is going to be, if I take this, I'm going to have to change my life. Like, I will not be able to get married to a woman, which at that point was only legal in Massachusetts, which is where I now live, which I find amusing. I'm probably going to have to stop drinking so much. There's just little things. I was like, I'm just going to, my life will be different, I'm pretty sure. But it also, it felt so stupid to pretend like the gospel wasn't true just because it was going to be inconvenient for my life. I knew I was not going to get a better deal than what I was offered at that moment. So I was like, I have to take this. This is God working on the pragmatic side of me. Like, I have to take this. So I probably looked pretty ridiculous in the library, but I basically just shut my eyes and said, okay, I'm in. I went to class and thought, what in the world do I do now? And so I saw a sign, a little advertisement um, for the Campus Crusade group at Yale. It was called Yale Students for Christ. And I was like, I didn't even know we had a Yale Students for Christ. And they were having a Valentine's party. And so I showed up at the Valentine's party pretending I was there by accident. And I found this community of students who just welcomed me There was no sense of judgment. It was just warm invitation and love. I I mean, I had a sailor's mouth. I would tell dirt, like in other contexts, you just tell really dirty jokes to make your friends because that impresses them. And so you try that in a new Christian context. It's just (laughs) silence, right? So you're like, oh, that doesn't work here. Okay, (laughs) recalibrating. Well, I basically just followed them around like a baby quail Um, learning, you know, when do we hug, when do we stand, going to the prayer meeting, going to the Bible study. For those of you who know Sylvia, Greg's wife, she was actually my very first Bible study teacher. That's how we met. She was great. She's teaching the children now. I guess I was like a child. So I was just full on in this Christian life. But it didn't take very long for me to realize these attractions for women are not going away. They're still here. So I know that the Bible says that I'm not supposed to pursue romantic and sexual relationships with women. But I still want to. And I don't understand why 
the why behind the what. I see what the scriptures say, but I don't get the logic. Like, isn't this just love? Isn't it just the same? And it was very troubling. I, really, the first couple years of my Christian life were taken up with this question. It was an urgent question. And I think I fell into a trap that many of us fall into, which is, I only want to obey something if I understand it. If I can see the reasons and if I agree with them, then I will be willing to obey. And functionally, we make ourselves God when we do that. I think one of the best early lessons that God pressed on me was, can you obey before you fully understand? And when can we do that in our life? It's only when the person asking us is fully trustworthy. I experience this now with my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter. She thinks of crazy things, and I have to like deny her things. And to her, she's like, why? And I'm like, seriously, don't touch the grill. It will not go well with, for you. And she trusts me most of the time. She did touch the grill that one time, and now she definitely learned. But we have, we have to trust someone. It's either ourselves or it's God. This is what we see in the garden, in fact. It's really interesting that God made the first sin basically a thing that wasn't good or bad. Like, you'd understand if God's first rule to Adam was, here's your one rule, Adam, don't kill your wife and only friend Eve. We'd be all like, that's a good reason. That's a good rule, like murder is gross, and then he'd be lonely, and how are they going to have the dominion of the earth if he kills her? You know, we would be like, yes. But it's not to eat a fruit. Like, even vegans eat fruit, you know? (laughs) And when the serpent speaks to Eve... He plays on that. He's like, God's withholding from you. And she looks at the data. She sees that it's good to eat. And she's like, yeah, I should do this. And all of our problems started. We do that same thing today. I had to be pressed into, is God trustworthy? It was the same thing that he was saying in the garden. Can you trust me with this? I mean, surely the evidence showed it. They had a beautiful place to live and a beautiful purpose. And in Jesus Christ, I had to answer again and again, yes, he is trustworthy. Anyone who would die for you is certainly trustworthy, but it's not even only his death. He never had to leave heaven. I, he didn't owe me saving. I could have died and stood in front of him and said, yeah, you have to condemn me. I am wicked. And we would have both agreed that he was right to do so. But instead, he left perfect fellowship with the Trinity and lived a miserable life and then was led to a miserable death. Everything about him shows that he is for us. When we try to make Christianity about the rules instead of about who he is, when we try to make it about the what and the why instead of the who, we get off track really fast. In this conversation, and frankly in others, I have found the foundation of the goodness and the trustworthiness of Christ to be my perfect North Star. It doesn't mean everything has been easy or enjoyable, 
but it has been my foundation. And I encourage us in this conversation to take that, to take who he is and his demonstrated goodness towards us as our foundation as we walk forward together in the conversation. Thank you. This is a heavy. This is a heavy mic. I it know. Looks, looks like an award. Yeah. That I want. You got the most, most improved, improved pastor. pastor. Yes, yeah. I was thinking so too. We'll see about that. I was mocking him earlier. I just want to thank funny. my mom. Um, well, we're gonna get into a few questions now. But again, if you're, I know there's uh, people watching online, and we have other locations. But in this location, uh, you have the opportunity to to come to a Q and A this afternoon at two p.m. Uh, you can text in your questions uh, now, and we'll answer, is, or she will answer. I will ask, I will read the questions, and she will answer uh, the questions, and we'll do as many as we possibly can, and then we'll put this online as well so others will be able to, uh, to hear it. But I'd love for you just to pick up a little bit on what you were just talking about, because I think what messes us up a lot on this topic as well as other topics is, um, you know, like... Some of us like hold the truth and like we're, you know, we're afraid to be too empathetic. Somehow like we're compromising the truth. We have a reverence for truth. Or some of us are, are very empathetic and have a difficult time with the truth because it feels oppressive or it feels like it's um, judgmental. So can you just speak like how to help us to know how to think about this topic? Yeah, I think it's a really important question because we do fall in different areas depending on our personality type or our upbringing or whether you're over the age of 35, you know, there's just different areas. Some, some of what the church has struggled with is that it was for many years accidentally orthodox. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that for a lot of people, for a long time, they agreed with what the Bible says, but only because it lined up with their natural instincts, they experienced opposite sex attraction. Everyone around them was in these marriages. So like, oh, that's good. And people who identified as gay were vilified in the worst possible ways. You know, they're portrayed in culture as perverts and deviants and trying to get your kids and gay sex seemed yucky. There was just like, that is all bad and we're good. It, wasn't, it didn't come at all from a reflection on what the scriptures say, or for looking to God for why it would be so, just an instinctual thing, which is also why so many people so quickly have abandoned God's word. Because it turns out when you have really nice gay neighbors, coworkers, friends, or your brother, and you're like, oh, that person's not a villain. They mow my lawn. They're actually nicer than a lot of Christians I know you think, oh, maybe I was wrong. Or frankly, the church has a big pornography problem. And as more and more people started to look at sex acts that they were referring to as horrendous and saying, maybe it's not so bad, they just flipped. Because it was never about the Bible. It was never about who God is or what his positive design for sexuality is. It's just about their feelings. At the same time, those who are more strongly empathetic 
And this is not me. Even when I was early trying to memorize the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, I would like consistently forget gentleness. Um, <laughs> they, they feel in their soul how important Matthew 7, 1 is, where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. But somehow they kind of neuter the verse by implying that it's what it means is you're not allowed to say whether what someone else is doing is wise or not or right or not. The difficulty with holding that interpretation is that that verse occurs in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was taking morality and tightening it. He says, oh, you agree that murder is wrong? If you even call your friend an idiot, you're guilty of the same thing. Oh, you've heard that adultery is bad? If you even look at a woman to lust, you've committed the same sin. Jesus cares deeply about holiness. You have to remember, it's a sermon to the self-righteous. So they're probably not murdering people and sleeping around, but they still need to see that their hearts are broken. But there's a way that the empathetic among us would like to see Matthew 7 and say, because later in the paragraph, Jesus has that great image of the log and the speck. He's like, why are you worried about your brother's speck when you have a giant log in your eye? And what the gentle among us would like the next scripture to say is, take the log out of your own eye and sit down and shut up. And that's not what Jesus says. His next word is, take the log out of your own eye so that you may remove the speck from your brother. If you are the kind of person who's real excited to go examining people's eyes, this is not your task. (laughs) But if you're someone for whom that sounds really hard, you're probably the best person for it, and the Spirit will give you what you need. You know, there's been this phrase haunting the church for a long time that is terrible, love the sinner, hate the sin, which is only ever received as, we hate you, but we're trying to figure out a nice way to say it. Rosaria Butterfield has reframed it as, love the sinner, hate your own sin. And I think that's a good word for us. So what you're saying is just like, um, on both sides, like we can be accident, what you're seeing is like, on both sides you're seeing that we can just accidentally fall into a belief and really we need to be challenged by what the scriptures have to say. Well, on that note, um, maybe maybe talk a little bit about um, just, God's view of sex, because there, there's probably s- several, and I know that we've all probably gone through this experience, which is, man, God's view of sex, what the Bible has to say about sex is very archaic, and uh, you know, I, I, it's just a huge barrier for me to ever even considering Jesus as a possibility. Just kind of speak to the person who's kind of like leaning back, like, I could never, I can't deal with that. Yeah, this is really important, because sometimes the way that the church has taught the whole message about sexuality has been, no, until you get married, and then it'll be great, which is ridiculous. That's not a way to teach about sex. We treat it as if God was, like, looking down one day and said, what are they doing with their bodies? I need to regulate this, you know, like he's afraid of sex or prudish or something. It's really helpful for us to know that God is the one who thought of sex, He is not prudish. He designed it for our joy. He designed it to communicate things. He could have created 
non-sexed beings. Like he could have created just humans that I guess asexually reproduced or whatever. He created male and female. He created them very good. It's important for us to see that he had a purposeful design. He wants to communicate through marriage and through sex. We're unusual in the broad Christian story because most of us can read. Most Christians in the history of the church have been illiterate. They needed pictures to understand the truth. That's why communion, you touch it, you taste it, you smell it, it communicates about Christ's broken body. When you're baptized, the water, you feel it, it makes you wet. Just like that, marriage and gender have been embedded so we see them and so we know. And God has designed at least four blessings within marriage and sex, and marriage is all of them. It's all of them together. Part of the difficulty is our culture has truncated it, and it's, in, it's basically reduced our ability to understand what marriage is. I'm going to give you a crash course real quick on the four. This will not be on the test. <laughs> the first is that God says explicitly all through picture, all through scripture, that marriage is a picture of the way he loves his people and the way his people are supposed to love him. In the new heavens and the new earth, the church is Jesus' bride. In Ephesians 5, it talks about Christ and the church being modeled in the husband and the wife. Even in the Old Testament, most of the examples are, I'm your good husband, and Israel, you are a harlot. But still, he's communicating like there is a love responsibility here. It's a powerful, potent message. And God is always the male partner, which is significant. He's not afraid to take female language on himself when he's comparing himself to a mother. Because he'll say, like, I nursed Israel at my bosom, right? But in this metaphor, he's always male. There's something about sex difference that's very important that communicates the message. The second blessing is procreation, that through the complementarity of our bodies, we can introduce into the universe beings that will never die. Children are eternal. That is an incredible way that we image God. The third blessing is sexual pleasure. God is the one who designed this process to be enjoyable. The book of the Bible that is about sexuality in marriage, Song of Songs, says nothing about procreation. It says a lot about pleasure. God is not prudish. He designed it to be that way. And then fourth... One of the, the last blessing of marriage is companionship. There's a particular kind of partnership between a husband and a wife. Um, like when Eve is brought to Adam, he breaks into a song like, this is finally bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like he, he's not talking about, I want to have a baby with her. I want to enjoy her body. There's a, there's a whole humanness there. But the problem is our culture has decided that marriage is only the last two things. It's only sexual pleasure and it's only companionship. Maybe with kids thrown in, if you've got enough money or if you're into that or whatever. Well, of course two men or two women can have sexual pleasure together. Of course two men and two women can have companionship. If that's all we've said marriage is, then it makes sense why we would say, oh, well, if that's all marriage is, then sure, you can have it too. But it doesn't fit the design. And part of the way that we're made in the image of God is we do have access to create through our gifts things that replicate his goodness. 
We know all kinds of non-believers who do wonderful things and are wonderful people because we've got enough to copy it in certain ways. But without him as the goal, without the spirit as the engine, it ultimately fails in its purpose. Speaking of marriage, uh, so part of your testimony is that your, primary, that your first attraction is to women, yet you got married to a man, Andrew. You have a four-and-a-half-year-old child. Um, it's like the child is proof somehow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, that may be confusing to a lot of... That may be confusing to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. I know. We've moved on. And the, uh, that may be confusing to a lot of people. It's like, so if you, if you, I don't, you know, or even some may even feel like you're selling out or something. Like, how do you, like, if that's true, then why get married? Why not stay single? Yeah, there are like two opposite errors on here. Some people will see my story and say, well, the only way to prove that you're faithful is to get married. Because some of the way that the church has perverted the gospel has said, if you come to Jesus, just be really faithful, or only sort of, you know, hard to tell sometimes, and your prize will be a spouse who's your best friend and a bunch of beautiful children. And that's not the gospel. A marriage is a beautiful thing, but it is not God's promise to you. It's kind of weird that we're in this moment because in the ancient church, the single life was varsity and marriage was definitely the JV team. We've kind of flipped that recently. But the other error is saying, well, because my same-sex attraction is so natural to me and the only thing I feel, then I can never um, enter into an opposite-sex marriage. Well, the thing is, God calls us to holiness, not to heterosexuality. If he calls me to get married, he doesn't have to make me attracted to every man or to most men, but he can equip me to have what I need to be married to the one man he's called me to, which I have found to be true. At the same time, I don't think that most same-sex attracted people will be called into opposite-sex marriages. And that's one place that makes me nervous because the church has done a bad job with welcoming and including singles into church life. And we need to do better. Marrieds and singles need each other. And especially if we're married, we have to realize you could be abandoned, your spouse could die. We all go through a series of singleness. So just in general, we need to get better at that. But even as we want to welcome in um, same-sex attracted people, that's a place where they're going to need to have real family. We need to do well. Good. Well, we don't have time for one more question, but we are going to ask it anyway. Uh, but just again, two o'clock, if you're here in the city, 2 p.m., we're going to have another hour-long Q&A uh, session. And again, for those online, we'll, we'll have it online later as well. But one last question. Could you please help us, equip us, how to have the conversation, how to respond when someone we love, a son, a daughter, um, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a brother or sister comes to us and, you know, comes out and says, hey, I identify, uh, I have same-sex attraction, I identify here. Give us some advice on how to respond. And it may be a, a helpful thing to do is say, okay, what's the best way that we can respond? And then what's the worst way that we can respond? And, and hopefully we'll fall toward the best way. Yeah, I was like, don't say the middle. That's not... I know, I know. I almost said the middle because you're just used to... <laughs> This is, this is a really important part of the conversation. And it's a, and it's a place where 
the cultural moment we're in can be slightly unhelpful because in 2018, there's never been like a cooler time to be gay. If you watch the Winter Olympics, it was like the only thing that was happening was that we had a gay um, male figure skater, it felt like. You know, so gay people have a lot of cultural cash. At the same time, on the ground, gay people are still incredibly vulnerable, especially youth. The rates of suicidality, of depression, of homelessness are much, much higher than the general population, especially among transgender youth. So we can get confused with the cultural acceptance and make us think that individuals are stronger. They are just as vulnerable. And even people who've had a good experience are still afraid when they come out. It is risky. You could reject them, especially if it's your child. A lot of LGBT youth have families who take away college money, who kick them right out, who cut them out of wills. This is not like 1950 stuff. This is 2018 stuff. So if someone decides to come out to you, they have taken a real risk and decided to at least see if you're trustworthy. And you have basically one minute to prove whether you deserve that trust or not. The best case response is to thank them immediately for sharing that with you. To reiterate that you love them, that you accept them, that your understanding of them hasn't changed, that you are profoundly for them. If you have a relationship where you show physical affection, show physical affection. If you don't, now's not the time to introduce it. That will be weird. If it's appropriate to have a continued conversation, ask them how long they've known this about themselves. If there's been a big gap between that and when they told you, it might be appropriate to apologize for not being safe for earlier. It'd be good to ask them, what's this experience been like for you in your faith identity, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with church? What's this been like with your family and friends? And when they pause, just say, tell me more. Just listen and listen and listen. That is the best case response. Some of the worst case responses are just ending the conversation or denying it. You're not really gay. This is a phase. Or saying you don't want to hear about it or you wish they'd never told you. That's a real story I heard recently. Some other worst case responses are saying, I've kind of known for a long time. It's weird, don't say that. <laughs> Even if it's true, like don't make this about you and if you're like, I don't know, the lady from the Carmen San Diego game, like you're not a sleuth, just like let it be about them. Another worst-case response is to feel like somehow this is a test from God to prove whether you're really theologically orthodox and suddenly you need to dump on this person the fact that you believe what the Bible says. People can feel that way, right? Like, I need to say all the true things right now or they'll think that I'm permissioning them to have gay sex or something. There's weird things that can happen in the mind. If they know you, they probably know that you're a Christian, if they don't know that you're a Christian, we should have another conversation about living with integrity. But if they know you, they probably know that you're a Christian. They probably know what you think. Now's not the time to like get your merit badge, right? 
If you maintain the relationship with love and dignity, you will gain a hearing for the hard things in Scripture. But the first conversation is not the time. Good theology with bad timing is Pharisaism. So you just have to be... Jesus isn't testing you. It's not a pop quiz. But he will empower you to love the person in that moment. And some of you might be thinking, oh, this happened to me 10 years ago, five years ago, last year, and I did the bad thing. We have so much grace from the Lord. You can go back to that person and apologize. It doesn't mean that you're giving up on your theology, but it can be a beautiful thing to humble yourself and say, I didn't do well with you, and I am very sorry and I would like to do better. That can be really powerful, and it's really necessary if you want the gospel to have any credibility in that person's life. And I guess my last word would be, if there are some of you in the room who experience same-sex attraction but haven't told anyone, it's not like you owe it to anyone. But sin loves to hide in the dark. You don't need to tell everybody your business, but I think it's important to tell some safe people because we need each other to grow. God gave us the word and the spirit and his people. And if you don't have his people, you're going to be more vulnerable. So I would encourage you to take that risk. Um, I think this is a safe church to do that. And I don't know, complain to Brian if it goes bad. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for answering those questions. And again, she'll be back here at two o'clock. Why don't we stand? I'm going to invite the band back up. I just want to lead us in a time to really have God uh, minister to us and speak to us. Um, Pointing our attention to the gospel, pointing our attention to to Jesus, we can get real help from, uh, regardless of where we come at this from. Maybe just kind of taking this backwards, she the last thing she mentioned was just about some of, sometimes we, we feel like we have to get the truth out first. It's helpful to know that when Jesus encountered sin, even especially sexual sin in John 8, that he didn't start with the theological lesson. He started with uh, a message of mercy and grace and, and listening. And, and then he spoke, okay, now go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. And just maybe we need to get our order reversed. And so... Those of us who out of fear um, need to be more empathetic. Uh, the gospel could needs to speak to us to cause us to be more humble, to cause us, uh, as we consider uh, the speck in someone else's eye, to first get the plank out of our own eye. And maybe that's the way the gospel would hit you today. Or maybe the, there's some of us who just feel uh, more empathetic at the expense of truth. Like you, you've just diminished who God is because you don't understand it. Because you don't know why you've you you have done what makes sense to you, and so you've you've rejected that. Or maybe you're here and you do you do experience same-sex attraction, and you feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel vulnerable. You're wondering, what does God think of me? What do these people think of me? And God wants to meet with you. He is near to the brokenhearted. He loves to show his mercy and grace to us. So we can all receive. So let's receive. Let's take this moment to receive.